Lord God, we do pray to you because you are Lord. We are not. We pray that you would make our hearts and our minds attentive to the truth of your word. Pray that you would guard my mouth from error. And you would lead me into the truth that we might be led into the truth of knowing that, God, we are weak clay pots that need you to be strong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1882, the famed atheistic philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, claimed that God was dead. Uh, Fast forward to April of 1966, and we see there one of the most iconic Time magazine covers where they ask the question, is God dead? And inside that magazine, they said that modern science had eliminated the need for religion to explain the natural world, and God then took up less and less of people's lives. And yet here we are some 50 plus years later, we find still major news sites still still, uh, predicting the downfall of religion in general, but especially Christianity here in the West. Uh, In a Newsweek article from way back in 2009, one author reported the fact that since 1990, self-identified Christians have fallen some 10%. More recently, we're seeing millennials are less affiliated with the so-called religion of their parents. And now it has become a common trope inside of urban settings in particular to see uh, church buildings having died, churches inside of them died, and those buildings be used as apartments or uh, bars. While at the same time, uh, churches who maintain the historic Christian orthodoxy of some 2,000 years, they are now more and more being seen as dinosaurs, sort of relics of the past. Uh, As others try to push on to the future, historic Christian orthodoxy is seen as something that's just clinging to the past here in the West. And I wonder why you would say that's happening. If you had to answer that question, why do you think this has happened? Why has historic Christian thinking come to be seen as something of the past? Something only, it is of the past, but something only as the past. So maybe we would say, well, it's because of sort of scientists or philosophers have sort of come to find things to be true so as to relegate it as not Christianity and other religions to be not true. It's just science and philosophers. They've discovered things. Well, that's certainly not the case. We don't have any information that would lead us to conclude that. Or perhaps you would say, Well, people have found, they have studied the Bible, and they have found Christianity wanting. Well, friend, that's certainly not the case either. Uh, If you have some friends, maybe some of you are here today, uh, friends that are non-believers, people that are not Christians, just ask them what the basic message of the Bible is. And you'll find that they'll have difficulty understanding and articulating that. So it's not as though people have studied the Bible and found it wanting. Well, maybe you would say, well, maybe it's something else. Maybe there's a kind of new religion or a new way of life that has been seen as irreducibly better than than Christ and his gospel. Well, friend, if that's the case, I have yet to hear what that might be. And so then what is it, you ask? Why then the centrally long uh, decline of gospel-believing Christians in the West? And by the way, you'll notice I keep using the word West. The reality is, outside of the West, uh, the gospel and gospel-believing churches are growing at historic rates. It's only in the West which should lead us to believe and slow down in our assessments. But nevertheless, why is it happening in the West? Well, I think we could, might could put it down into a word. The word freedom. Freedom. We Westerners prize our freedom more than anything else. 
Freedom has now become has come to mean more options. We need options. That's freedom. So the more options we have, the more free we will be. Likewise, the fewer options we have, the less free we are and the less free we are. So the thinking goes, the less happy we will be. Freedom, then, is the key to life, joy and meaning. And for freedom to exist, options then must be limitless. And so square that kind of thinking with the gospel that says that Christ is the only way to life, to love and eternal salvation. And you can begin to understand why uh, at a significant level. One fundamental reason why we're seeing a decline of people maintaining a historic Christian confession. We've come to see in our society that uh, we've kind of come to see that the gospel is sort of something we've kind of graduated from. We're moving on to bigger and better things. We don't need antiquated religion anymore. We don't need the authority of the Bible. We don't need the church. We certainly don't need church membership. And we definitely don't need pastors telling us what is right and wrong, trying to bind our consciences. No, what we need is to break away from such things that keep us back. And we need to press on to unlimited options that will be able to be customizable to each person and then we will be said to be free. Joyful. In this way, William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus has come to be our new religion. Where he finishes his poem, I'm sure you've heard it before, quote, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, the cracks of such thinking are beginning to be apparent to us now, but wouldn't it be great if we could study someone who tried to live in this new new sort of uh, defined freedom? Wouldn't it be great if we could study their life and see what happened? To see what it would be like if they were to live out this new understanding of individual, personal strength and power and freedom and see what happened at the end of their life and if they would agree that was a life worth living. Well, friends, meet Samson. If ever there was one person who was not bound by antiquated vows, it was him. He leaned into sexuality, just as we are told today, and he used his supernatural power for his own gain. He was being his sort of authentic self, we might say. He was free, as we even might define it today. And so did he, did Samson, find the way to life? We'll turn to Judges chapter 16, and we'll see. Judges 16. Now, last week, we saw the miraculous beginnings of Samson, how an angel of the Lord showed up and promised Manoah's barren wife uh, that she would have a child, that's Samson's parents. Angel of the Lord shows up, tells them that this child that was to be born to Manoah's wife was to be under what was called a Nazarite vow from birth to death. That vow meant, remember, three things. They couldn't drink wine, couldn't be around grapes and sort of, you know, taste grapes, I should say, eat them. Uh, they shouldn't touch dead bodies. And a Nazarite vow would also thirdly have you uh, to not cut your hair. You'll see that today. And so God was going to use this man. We saw last week, God was going to use this man, Samson, to begin to deliver God's people from the Philistines. Now, just stop for a moment and remember where we were at the beginning of this book of Judges where Israel was coming into the land and they were the ones that were supposed to have all the power. Now they're being held in captivity to the Philistines and God is raising up Samson to begin to deliver them from them. But what we saw, though, is that Samson was more concerned with his own privileges and his own freedoms than he was God, his glory, and his people. That brings us to Judges 16, where we will see today that Samson's strength is finally sapped. How? 
by seduction. Sapped by seduction. We will see that when he was strong, Samson, he was in fact quite weak. And alternatively, we will see that when he became weak, it was then that he became strong. Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So here we see Samson falling back into his old ways of sensuality. Samson goes into the capital city of the Philistines, that's Gaza, and he takes for himself a prostitute. And as he's there, the Philistines are surrounding him. He's been very troubling to the Philistines. And so they're surrounding him where he is, and they're going to wait to the morning to take him down. Uh, They're probably sleeping at this point. And yet in, in another amazing testimonial to Samson's supernatural strength, he leaves before the morning and he pulls up the city gate. The gate would have been very large, by the way. He pulls up the city gate and carries it some 40 miles to a hill outside of Hebron. The strength of Samson is unparalleled. Just imagine, guys, if he used his strength for good. Verse 4. And after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, they know how to get a hold of Samson, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me, love the fact that he they, she just repeats almost exactly what they said. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. You'd have thought Samson would have run at this point, but no, Samson's a confident guy. So just to be clear now, when we think about Delilah, this is now the third woman that Samson has slept with that we know about. So you've got the Philistine woman who wanted, whom Samson wanted back last week uh, in chapter 14. Uh, we have him going after her for what reason? Because she was right in my eyes. As I said last week, putting it 21st century American lingo, she's hot, I want her. That's why we saw that was last week. Uh, we see the prostitute there in verse 1 of chapter 16. And now Delilah. Now you should know that word woman there in verse 4. That's the same word that's translated prostitute in verse 1. So Delilah was also a prostitute whom he grew to love. But this woman that he grew to love, this relationship they had was at best thin. You'll see that more as the story goes along. Samson doesn't even reveal to her some of the most important parts of his life. So this is a relationship that's very thin. Now Delilah, she's into Samson, it seems, for the money. 
Not only is it very likely that she met him as a prostitute, we find that she that it only takes the offer of some silver to coax her into betraying Samson through her seducing him. And so, friends, you should know that when relationships are built upon flimsy foundations, we should expect them to quickly and easily fall when temptation arises. And temptation always does. That was true for them, and that is still true for us. Relationships built on sensuality are as flat and flimsy as a pancake. It takes nothing more than the delicate jab of a fork to punch a hole in it and divide the relationship. Samson and Delilah, they say that they love each other, but their love is as healthy as that sappy, sugary substance that we call syrup that is doused over the flimsy pancake. Our lives and loves, folks, must be more substantive and salty built on more firm foundations than individual preferences like this relationship. Well, the game goes on, we see here in the text. The Philistines, they want to humble the proud and powerful Samson by figuring out how to bind him. And so Delilah straight up asks him how that can happen. And we see in verses 7 to 9, Samson Samson says that it takes seven fresh bowstrings to bind him. Now, who knows how and why Samson allows her to do this. But regardless, Delilah ties him up. Maybe it was a game. Maybe Samson was so self-confident he didn't worry about why Delilah was doing this. Of course, he knew that this wasn't going to be the case that he could break out. But regardless, she says to Samson that the Philistines are upon him. And of course, at that point, he easily breaks out and gets out of this binding that he said would bind her. So in verse 10, we see there that she, Delilah, is not happy that the fact that Samson had lied to her. Verses 11 to 12, we see Samson, she asks again, well, what's it going to take, Samson, to bind you? Verses 11 to 12, Samson says, get some new ropes. That'll work. Now, we already saw last week in chapter 15, we know that's not the case. But, of course, Delilah doesn't know that. She ties him up again. Same series of events. She says, the Philistines are on you. He breaks out of it quite easily. He snaps the rope, it says, like a thin thread. In verses 13 to 14, Delilah again uh, asks him. She's disappointed in Samson's lies. But regardless, she's not giving up. She wants that silver. And so Samson gets closer to the truth by saying she needs to pin up his hair. He goes to sleep. Same series of events. Philistines are upon you. And of course, he takes the pen out. No big problem. And that leads us to what actually does work in verse 15. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have told and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in her hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had, uh, had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. There's Samson's self-confidence coming out again. But note these next words. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Isn't it interesting that Samson once destroyed all their crops, now he's helping produce them. Well, we see here Delilah finally prevailed against Samson by using his confession of love against him. Day after day, she pressed him and urged him until Samson was, quote, vexed to death. In other words, guys, I think she nagged him long enough to wear him down, and he told her the Nazarite vow. And here's the thing I find interesting about that. How could he say that he loved this woman and at the same time never even mention the vow that very much defined his life? See, I think there's a very simple answer to that question. See, Samson, I think, Samson most definitely, not I think, Samson did. He confessed the Lord, but the Lord was just not that important to him. From all of his sexual exploits to his selfish rages of anger, all the way down to the prayer for some water to drink for no other reason than he wanted some water, Samson was into the Lord for what the Lord could do for him, not for the Lord himself. Even though Samson was raised up by God to begin to deliver God's people from the Philistines, Samson urged or used those good gifts to deliver himself from his own passions and his own urges. That's how he used it. He, he took the Lord and the Lord's gift for granted because while he claimed to know the Lord, he did not seem to love the Lord. Seems. He loved himself. He loved his own sensuality while at the same time taking the name of the Lord. So Samson was strong. He was favored, blessed by God, placed in a position to do something significant for God and for God's people. While the Lord still mercifully used Samson, Samson squandered God's gifts by thinking about himself before he did his God and his neighbor, God's people. See, he forgot. He forgot where his strength came from and he forgot why God gave him that strength in the first place. And he began to believe himself. And that's what led to his being captured and his eyes being gouged out. He thought he was strong, but in fact he was weak. Delilah used that against him just as the evil one does to us today. Using our strengths against us. And that reminds me of a story that that the men heard last fall at our men's retreat. Where Brother John Erickson came, was a, one of the other pastors in our TCT network that we're a part of, came down and shared a story of something that happened in the life of his church. Uh, it was a story, a sad true story, of a, of a man that was a noted sort of, uh, he's a pastor in their church, Jubilee Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was, a no, he was graduated with his MDiv, he'd written books, he'd spoken at conferences, he was a pastor in their church. Uh, and this uh, man uh, was... Uh, came to be exposed to another woman. See, John got a phone call one night from a woman, and this woman said that she needed to meet with John. And so John then says, listen, I'll meet with you next week, whatever. And she says, no, I need to talk to you now. So John, do they do, they come up and meet, they begin to talk, and this woman begin to quickly expose how this other man, this noted author, pastor, speaker, had begun to pursue her. 
she revealed gifts, cards, messages of the ways that he had pursued her. This man was married with three children. Well, John then gets the other elders of his church. They again go into this man's house and they show up on his door. He knows that something is up. They go and sit down. And as they're sitting down, conversing, uh, not 60 seconds, John says, not 60 seconds into their exposing what they had learned uh, about the way this man was pursuing this other woman, the man breaks down and says, it's all true. And then he said something I think that was so instructive to us today. He said, I thought I could handle it. I thought I could stop it. See, this man fell into the same trap that Samson did. He believed his own hype, his own strength. He thought he was like Samson. He thought he was strong, but he forgot where his strength came from. So in essence, he was a very, very weak man. Though in the eyes of many, he appeared quite strong, quite godly. And yet, the reality is, because of his sin, like gangrene, hurt and pain spread through to this woman that he pursued, obviously to his wife, to his children, and even to the church that he had the privilege to lead. And again, we ask why. Because he thought he could handle it. Because he thought he was strong. And like Samson, in reality, he was only shackled by his sin the whole time. The same is true for us, friends, for all of us who think that we are strong in and of ourselves. Because this is what you have to understand. In the society in which we live in, this idea of the supremacy of self, of individualism and individual strength is incredibly toxic. It's incredibly toxic. It tempts us to believe that we are strong, that we know what's best, that we can handle whatever comes on the other side of doing what is right in our own eyes. And all it leads to is our eyes being gouged out and our hands being shackled by our own sin. And all of this, by the way, while still taking the name of the Lord. Samson didn't deny the Lord. And so, folks, it's important that we understand, unlike Samson, unlike this other man, we're not strong. You're not. I'm not. You're not. You are not strong in and of yourself. None of us are. We cannot handle life in our own strength and in our own way. We are fools if we buy into the evil one's lies that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is found by our being released from the wisdom of ancient paths and by our blazing our own trails, our own new trails. We're fools if we believe that. We are fools if we believe that the evil one's lies uh, about the evil one's lies that we can be strong and that we can do as we please. We are fools if we believe that God's ways are not the best ways. Samson, friends, is the tale of everyone who neglects the Lord's good gifts, that forsakes the mercies of God which are new every day, and believe that strength is found from within and not from without. Because this is the most important, one of the most important aspects of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible. And this is precisely because it's pointing us to one of the most important aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes a Christian a Christian? Namely, that apart from Christ, as Jesus told us, we can not only not do some things, Jesus says we can do nothing. Nothing, he says in John 15. 
Every single religion on planet Earth outside of biblical Christianity says do this well enough for long enough and God will love you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely different. It is the only one. It is the only one that is honest about our weakness. It's the only one. It it not only admits our weakness, the Bible does, the gospel does. It not only admits our weakness, it demands that we know it and own it. See, friends, you cannot be born again. Until you see the point of the story of Samson, the story of Judges, the story the whole Bible is making. Namely, we're not just broke. We are not just sick. We are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sin apart from Christ. It's important that you recognize that. It's important that you recognize how this little chapter right here sort of fits in time to the larger framework of the entire Bible. And so it would be good for us at this point of the story in Judges 16 to then ask the question, why is this here? Why did God put this story in the Bible? Why is Judges 16? Why is Samson in the Bible? Wouldn't it have been better if we were kind of making up a whole religion to keep this stuff out of the Bible? So why is this here? Well, friends, it's to expose that reality of weakness. See, many people read the Old Testament like I used to read the Old Testament, thinking it's just sort of a journalistic account of things that happen, transpire. That's not the way it was written. You'll, time, you'll see time and again, the Old Testament was written, at least even Judges, it was written long times after these events happened. And it's here for us to understand the realities that God wants us to see. Namely, that we're weak. Even the strongest people of the Bible are weak. Think about the story of David. The story of Abraham. All of them. They're there. The Bible doesn't hide them. They put them front and center so that we would see that we are weak. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're supposed to see that mankind with all their privileges, Israel with all their privileges, couldn't do it. Couldn't be holy. And so friends, here's why the story of Samson is here. It is to point to that ultimate reality, but also more immediately to point to the reality that Samson is just like Israel. You look at the life of Samson and you understand the story of Israel, which is the story of all of us, but in particular the Old Testament we learn in the Old Testament about the story of Israel. So just think about these things. So as Samson had a gracious beginning with his barren mother, So Israel was graciously made a people from their barren faith in the one true God. Just as Samson was given the presence of the Holy Spirit, so Israel was given the presence of God in the tabernacle or in the temple. Just as Samson was supposed to begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, Israel was supposed to deliver the world from its idolatry by displaying the glory of God through their being distinct from the world. But just as Samson abused God's gracious gift and gave in to his passions, so Israel abused God's graciousness and gave in to all of their passions by playing the role of the harlot to the nations. And as you'll see in a moment, just as Samson became a mockery to his enemies, so Israel became a mockery to the nations. And so as Samson's neglect of God caught up with him and shackled him, so did Israel's neglect of God catch up with him and leave him in shackled to the nations they were supposed to rule over. Israel was supposed to rule over. And so this story, friends, is here to point us to, to failures, to weakness of moral sin. And Israel is meant to point the whole world that has the same story. 
That's why Jesus, friends, was not just a nice gift to the world. He was a gift that was needed because, as we've seen, we are weak. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Friends, Jesus is not just a good example. So many people teach that and take the name Christian. They miss the entire teaching, one of the most important teachings of the Bible. Jesus, friends, is our redemption. He's our redemption. Samson deserved the humiliation that he received by the Philistines, and we deserve the humiliation that we receive by our sinful choices. Jesus, though, did not deserve the humiliation he received because he was the only one that was actually strong because he never sinned. But he became sin for us who believe so that we who are in him might become the righteousness of God in him through faith. And that faith is not just something that we uh, get on the day of our faith or the day that we become Christians. No, our faith is a daily momentary, momentarily thing, momentary thing that says, I can't handle it. I can't obey God. I am not strong in and of myself. I need God. I need God to be holy. I need Jesus. I can't handle this. And so that's what Christians say is I'm not trusting myself. We can own our weaknesses. We can own our hypocrisy even and say I need Jesus to cleanse me, not my own good works. I got to be weak so that I can be strong in holiness. Acceptance with God. That's exactly how the story ends. Take a look at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. Note, friends, they're coming together in a temple to a false god. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. Note the little g God there. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. They thought they won. And when their hearts were merry, probably means they were drunk, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Quite the finish of Samson's life, isn't it? Verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord. Big shift here. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them. His right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. 
Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. That's the last judge, by the way, in the book of Judges. Still another judges in the book of Samuel, Eli. That's the last judge here. Now take a look back there at verse 28. It should have sounded a little different to you than the prayer that you heard before from Samson at the end of chapter 15. This seems to be a different Samson. This is a Samson that seems to have been humbled. His strength is gone, and he seems to finally know his need of God. This time when Samson prays, unlike before, he calls on the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Lord. Samson now seems to know his place. Whereas before, he was sort of outside the covenant uh, God and his people sort of doing his own thing. Now he understands his place to call upon God as Lord. There seems to be no cynicism here, no insisting as we read before in chapter, at the end of chapter 15. This time, Samson is requesting, note the words, please, please, remember me. Doesn't sound like the same Samson. Please, strengthen me. Samson is weak. And he finally remembers, maybe for the first time, he remembers where his strength comes from. Now I know there's conversations going on in the life of our church about this request to have to be avenged. Sounds like the old Samson, doesn't it? Well, friends, I think that points to all of us. We're mixed bags, aren't we? That's why we need Jesus. But even more as he Praise to be avenged for his eyes. Note that request is noted to his eyes. It's sort of relegated to be avenged for his eyes. There's nothing he seems to be mentioning of his own humiliation to be avenged for. Nothing about his capture. Nothing about the deceits. Not, requ- not requesting anything to be avenged for theirs. Just his eyes. And Samson, we even, find, we even find him willing to be sacrificed in his request. It's a different Samson. Strong and sensual Samson seems to have left us, and now we have a Samson that is weak and willing to be sacrificed. We have a Samson that seems to believe in the power of God, no longer in the power of himself. And the Lord mercifully answers Samson's prayers by bringing justice upon the idolatrous and mocking Philistines. And there's something to note there in verse 30 that you shouldn't miss. It's easy to glean over. Note that it says there he killed more in his death than he did in his whole life while living. God, you recall, promised to begin to deliver the Israelites from the idolatrous Philistines. And while he did that in part while Samson was alive, God delivered the Israelites even more from the Philistines in Samson's sacrificial death. In other words, it was the weakness of Samson that brought more justice upon the Philistines than it was during all of Samson's strong days. Did you catch that? And this, friends, is what the author of Hebrews picks up on in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you're new to the Bible, the book of Hebrews is in something we call the New Testament. It's part of the New Covenant where Christ has come and sealed redemption, bringing His Spirit to come upon sinners, having paid the penalty for sin. So we'll see in a moment. 
So he's writing now on this side, looking back and reading the Old Testament, reading Judges in particular. Looking, you'll see it above me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. It says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of, and then we get a bunch of judges or people, deliverers that we've seen. Gideon, Barak, Samson. And then you'll note, by the way, this is an important part of understanding Hebrews 11.32. You'll note what they do is they're not commenting on their entire life. They're commenting their faith in God in these particular events. And they list some of those events. Conquered kingdoms. They enforce justice. They obtain promises. They stop the mouths of lions. They quench the power of fire. They escape the edge of the sword. And then we get to the one I believe is meant to point to Samson. We're made strong. Out of weakness. Isn't that what we just read in Judges 16? See, for the great majority of Samson's life, he got it wrong. He lived in sensuality and abused the Lord's good gift of strength. Chaos ensued as a result. But in the end, by the grace of God, Samson was humbled. And in his humility, he learned the great secret of life. Namely, that to be weak is to be strong. See, Samson was like that man. He thought he could handle it. He'd always thought, like most people do today, that to be strong is not to be weak. He learned, though, as the Apostle Paul did hundreds of years later, to acknowledge moral weakness is to set us on the path to being strong in the might of God's holiness. And why is that the great secret of life? Well, friends, because it points to the greatest story of all. The stories of all great stories that they point to. Listen, was it not the weakness of Christ on the cross wherein He defeats the great power of sin and death? Did Christ not do more in His death than all of the miracles of His life? Amazing, isn't it? That the man who helps us to understand the deadness of Israel also helps us to understand the beauty of Christ. Just as Samson was mocked and ridiculed by his enemies, so was Jesus. Just as Samson willfully laid his life down in order to suffer the just penalty for the guilty Philistines, so Jesus, the innocent one, laid his life down to suffer the just penalty for guilty sinners. There is one, though, obvious difference between, the, between Jesus and Samson. And that is, Jesus rose from the dead three days later. Why is that the case? Well, this was because Jesus' sacrificial death was the only one that was not mixed with a hint of sin. Christ was God in the flesh. He was perfectly innocent. Samson was obviously a man and perfectly guilty. But friend, take heart in how Samson shows us Jesus. Take heart because it reveals that God very often uses crooked sticks to straighten up the world. If he can use foolish judges who often can't get out of the way of themselves, rest assured, friend, he can use you and me as well. None of us are too far gone that we cannot be found by God's grace. And so, friend, let me speak to you. If you've left the bed of a prostitute this morning to come to this gathering, you should know, as we look at Samson, God's grace is not too far from you. Samson reveals that. It all begins, friendo, by opposing the message of the world's counsel of individual freedom and strength. To acknowledge your guilt against God. 
to acknowledge your need for the grace of Christ that leads to forgiveness. And not just today, but every day. And not even just every day, but every moment of the day, your need for him. And so that means, friend, that you're going to have to deny yourself. Oppose the countercultural message here. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. He becomes your life. He becomes your strength. He becomes your joy. He becomes your Lord. You're not the Lord. He is. And every knee will bow, by the way. Some willing, some not. So like Samson, friend, you're going to have to be willing to lay your life down so that you and others may live. Repent of your sin. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Ask him for the forgiveness for the ways in which you have attempted to live as Lord. And in that, you will find the secret of life that Samson found. And I pray that you do as well. But for the rest of us who do believe, listen, stop trying to prop yourself up. Resist the inclination to be proud. Stop the inclination of trying to be strong in yourself. Everybody knows that's not true of you anyway. Does it make any sense to try to act like it? Reject sensuality. Reject sinful anger. And be reminded that to be weak is to be strong. Weakness, though, begins by confessing your sins of pride and sensuality to God. And as you do that in prayer, ask Him not just like Samson, ask Him not just to remember you, but most importantly, to remember the blood of Christ that pleads for you. Ask him to remember that on your behalf. Receive his love and forgiveness and then ask him to strengthen you as Samson did. Not to shake down temples, but to enliven faith. That's where true freedom is actually found. And as he does this, tell somebody. Tell somebody what he's done. Tell him about the good news of Jesus Christ. Tell him about what a mess you are what a great Messiah Jesus is and how he is a better Lord. There's more freedom, more life in him than there is in anything else. And then invite them in. Call them to live in submission to Jesus and enjoy life together as we gather those people into this gathering, being that counter-cultural city on earth, showing that we are not our own lords, but Christ is, and admitting our strength And trusting Him to be found strong is the way to true life because He's the true Lord that overcomes sin and death forever. Let's pray. God, forgive us for the ways in which we have attempted to be proud. Forgive us for the ways in which we have leaned into our sensuality, conforming to the pattern of the world. We plead the blood of Christ. We admit we are not righteous in ourselves. We admit that we are so much like Samson, trying to be strong in and of ourselves, forgetting where our strength actually comes from, forgetting where every good gift comes from. We admit that that's true of us. And we thank you that you are God that is patient with us. Thank you that you have sent your Son who entered into our world willfully and humbled himself to the point of man and even death on a cross so that the greatest power of all, sin and death, might be overcome. 
And so those of us that take faith in him, we too may overcome in him. God, may we live there day after day. And may those that have never understood the gospel in this way, may they come to believe and live with Christ as Lord. We ask, God, that you would even receive this song now as we sing it back to you and to one another. Christ is our only hope. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand as the musicians come, and we're going to sing a song that's familiar to probably many of you, called In Christ Alone. And as you sing that song, be reminded that you are weak. And the reason why it is Christ alone is because he's the only one that's strong.